This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles now to Job chapter 31. And as you make your way to the 31st chapter of Job, well, I just want to take some time to put our text back into its context. I should begin by reminding you that the last five studies of this overview, well, they've been centered on the content of Job's final defense. And now here in our text tonight, we find Job, he's beginning to wrap up his final argument, and he does this by presenting his friends with the final word. But now before we begin to consider the content of this conclusion, I want to take a moment to provide you with a recap of the highlights that Job has presented in the past five studies. I'll remind you that Job began his final defense by first acknowledging the sovereignty of our creator. And so in this defense, he puts God first. He acknowledges God's sovereignty and his authority. And after exalting the Almighty, Job then shifted his focus by sharing his confusion as he wondered why the Lord was punishing him. You see, Job was a man who was faithfully walking with the Lord, and so he was just confused about why he was receiving uh, this sort of punishment. And then Job shifted his attention back to God as he insisted that the Lord is the one who is the source of true wisdom. And so in that sense, he's saying, hey, I don't understand what's going on, but at least I know that God is all wise. And with this recognition, Job then struggled to understand why the Lord was no longer providing him with the godly guidance that he needed so that he could make sense of all of this. And then it was in our study last week when then Job shifted his focus once again as he began to describe the emotional pain that he was suffering after becoming a social pariah there in the community. And after struggling to understand why the Lord was allowing him to suffer in so many ways, we now find Job confirming the importance of consequences for those who break the laws of the Lord. And he does this while simultaneously maintaining his own innocence uh, in all of these matters that he raises tonight. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, we're going to spend our time considering the consequences which could come upon those who are failing to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And knowing that the Lord has no problem punishing the backsliding believers who are still living in sin, it's my hope that this study will help sinning Christians to correct their course before they suffer the loving correction of our Heavenly Father. Well, with this as the focus, let's focus our attention now on the final chapter of Job's final defense. It's found here in Job chapter 31. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Job declares, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job. He's informing his friends about a covenant that he made with the Lord. And just to be clear, the covenant that Job made was based on his commitment to maintain mental purity. That's right, Job made a covenant with his eyes. And this covenant was uh, to avoid looking lustfully after other women. Think about it. This covenant was uh, being made with the recognition that lustful looks, 
well, they become lustful imaginations. And listen, lustful imaginations, well, they become lustful decisions. Lustful decisions become lustful actions, which then lead us into a lustful lifestyle, resulting in the destructive behaviors that destroy so many lives. Now, when we get to the third paragraph of this chapter, we're going to spend a little more time on this topic. But for now, I just want to focus your attention on the consequences, which eventually affect those who fail to keep themselves from this path of lust that leads to destruction. Notice again, after Job uh, announces that he's made a covenant with his eyes, it's there in verse 2 where Job again asks, For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Now here we find Job, he's uh, presenting his defense for the fact that he's not walking in these lustful sorts of ways. He's made a covenant with his eyes so that he's not looking at, at the ladies that he shouldn't be looking at. And, and not only that, but, but he's not living in a destructive, wicked way. And so, so he's saying, hey, doesn't God see the way I'm living? And if so, then why am I being punished? At the same time, though, we find Job connecting the dots between lustful looks and the destruction of the wicked. And as we con- consider the, the, the connection here, we would do well to realize that Job was making a covenant with his eyes in order to avoid the disaster that eventually comes upon the workers of iniquity. More simply put, Job, well, he determined to employ measures, drastic measures in order to protect the purity of his mind. He engaged in measures that maybe the people around him thought was legalistic. Oh, Job, you're just being legalistic. But Job had no problem with this. Job had no problem making sure that he wasn't looking lustfully at other women. And the reason why he wouldn't go to, say, like a Taylor Swift concert... Well, it's because he was smart enough to, to, to see how a little compromise today would lead a person down a path of destruction, which eventually results in the punishment of the Lord. A, a little compromise today, and a little compromise tomorrow, and a little compromise the next day. And Well, how many little compromises do you have to make until it's a huge compromise? In light of Job's example, I encourage every Christian to consider the path that we're presently on. What path are you on tonight? Are we currently making small compromises that seem like no big deal right now? And yet, we're failing to recognize that we're slowly returning to the broad road that leads to destruction? Are we entertaining sinful desires which could disqualify us from serving the Lord? If so, then you might decide tonight that it's time to make a covenant with the Lord to guard your eyes from things that you shouldn't be looking at. And not only that, but we should also guard our hearts against the idolatries of covetousness. And with this in mind, 
I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 31. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here Job goes on to declare, If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. Now here again we find Job acknowledging the fact that he would most definitely deserve the righteous punishment of the Lord if, in fact, he had been guilty of living as a deceptive transgressor. And and he's acknowledging that there ought to be consequences for those who uh, live a deceptive life. Now we know that Job was a faithful man. This is how he's introduced in the beginning of the book. We know that Job was a blameless man who truly feared the Lord, and it's for this reason that he was struggling to understand the the real reason for why the Lord was allowing him to suffer as if he were some sort of evildoer. When we get to Job chapter 38, we'll consider the way that the Lord finally responds to all of Job's concerns and complaints. I'm looking forward to spending our time in the final chapters of this book. But before I get too far ahead of myself, we should spend some time considering the point that Job here is making in this paragraph. You see, Job truly believed that those who attempt to deceive others for the sake of selfish gain ought to be punished according to the righteous judgment of God. And those who have acquired worldly wealth through dishonest means, well, they should watch as their wealth is taken from them. And they should watch as their hard work fails to benefit them at all. Listen, whether we're talking about judges who corrupt justice after receiving a bribe, or an internet scammer who's trying to acquire someone's credit card information, or anything in between, you know, those who engage in deceptive measures in order to gain the wealth of this world, they deserve to be punished for their deceptive ways. And that's what Job is saying. Had I, had I been a deceiver of this nature, then I would deserve this punishment that I'm receiving. And in light of this, we would do well to realize that the Lord doesn't want us engaging in deceptive measures just for the sake of gaining worldly wealth. I think uh, Paul put it best in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he declares those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For notice, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Christian, listen, those who desire to be rich Well, these are the people who begin to love money more than the Lord. The desire to be rich leads us to love money more than the Lord. The money itself isn't bad. It's the love of money that becomes the root of all kinds of evil. And it's the love of money that has destroyed the lives of many. And it's sad to say that there are many Christians in the church today who are engaging in deceptive measures in order to acquire the wealth that they desire. 
even Christians on staff embezzling money from their own church. If this sounds like your struggle, then I encourage you to realize that those who love money more than the Lord will stray from the faith in their greediness as they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. And you better believe that the enemy is going to open all kinds of doors that entice you to go down this path. What's that? I can get a raise if I start working Sundays? Sounds like an open door from Satan. We need to be careful before we choose to go down a path that would lead us astray. And we need to be careful that we guard our hearts against the love of money because it's the love of money that will pierce our hearts with many sorrows. One of these sorrows might be the broken relationship that occurs whenever we begin to pursue the lifestyle of the rich and famous. To explain my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 31. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9, here Job declares, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity, deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. Here in these verses, we find Job continuing to defend his own innocence by insisting that he's never cheated on his wife. Remember, he made a covenant with his eyes. He's not looking lustfully after, the, uh, after other women. And now we see him saying, hey, I, if, if, if I had cheated on my wife, then I would deserve this punishment, but I haven't. I'm not guilty of this. You see, Job understood that you know, this sort of lifestyle ends up becoming a fire that consumes a life to destruction and all of your increase ends up lost. From this, we find Job insisting that he had been a faithful husband. And at the same time, he also insists here that every act of adultery is a destructive depravity that deserves the just judgment of the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every sexual sin deserves a just punishment from the Lord? You might not know this, but adultery used to be a crime here in America. It used to be a crime to commit adultery. As a matter of fact, up until the mid-20th century, most U.S. states had laws against adultery, fornication, cohabitation, homosexuality, and so on and so forth. There used to be laws on the record. And somebody could be punished for committing these sexual sins. Well, since then, the the majority of these laws have gradually been abolished or struck down in the courts. And, And what's happened since then? What's happened to America since these laws have been removed from our states? Well, I mean, setting aside the whole topic of abortion, which is a tragedy in and of itself, you should know that one in four children now in the U.S. are being raised in fatherless homes, which is over three times the global average. How incredible is that? 
one in four children here in the U.S. are being raised in fatherless homes, which is over three times the global average. What is happening in our country? Well, people just doing whatever they want to do. Now, if you're wondering why 23% of the kids in our country are being raised in single-parent homes, it's because our nation, by and large, has rejected the Lord's design for the nuclear family. And while it's true that the courts have uh, helped to make adultery and fornication and cohabitation the norm, the government is also subsidizing broken families with extra income for every parent that has another child. And yes, this is despite the fact that many of these kids then go on to end up in the same system, and the government knows this. The government knows that the majority of these kids being raised in single-parent homes will end up in the system, which is then a benefit to them because, you know, you've got to vote for the party that's going to keep paying. Now listen, I commend every single parent here tonight who's doing the best they can to raise their kids according to the truth of God's word. And and I wouldn't want any single parent here tonight to feel like I'm coming down on you. But listen, at the same time, we have to look at the data and, and consider what's happening here in our country. And we must not fail to consider the U.S. DOJ data on how this issue is actually affecting our kids here in America. For example, you might not know this, but 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. And 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. 71% of all children who abuse substances come from fatherless homes. And the same number, 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. According to data from the Fatherless Project, fatherless kids are 20 times more likely to be incarcerated. And children who are close to their fathers, uh, 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 children uh, who aren't close to their fathers are are 80% more likely to spend time in jail. Another study conducted by the National Center for Fathering helps us see see that 85% of of youth, uh, youth in prison come from a fatherless home. I present all of this not to shame anybody, but to just point out how this is tragic and it totally affects the kids that we're raising. In the light of this data, it's important for single moms and and single dads for that matter to to look for help, to to look to extended family, to to look even to the church so that our kids who are being raised in single parent homes can actually gain the victory over these stats. Because remember, with God, all things are possible. And those who walk by faith with Jesus Christ, we can overcome all of these things. Praise the Lord. But we must understand that the odds are stacked against kids being raised in fatherless homes, and therefore they need more attention from our Christian community. And we need to help our kids to understand that those who engage in, in the sins of adultery, those who engage in the sin of fornication and cohabitation, if, if they go down this path, then they're on the broad path that has the potential of destroying many lives, whether it be through abortion or whether it be through being raised in a single-parent home, which then brings with it 
the possibility of all these problems. We need to do our best, Christian, to make sure that our kids who are being raised in single-parent homes today are receiving the attention and the instruction that they need so they, they don't go down this path. And parents will do well to help their kids to understand the warning that Paul presented in Hebrews chapter 13 where he declares this. He says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's what he says. Fornicators and adulterers will be judged by God. Christian, listen, those who engage in the sexual sins of fornication, which basically covers the gamut on all sexual sin, but then also adultery, which is you know, sinning with somebody who's married, those who are on this path will discover that it's a path that leads to destruction. And if there's no repentance, it's a path that eventually results in the just judgment of the Lord. It's for this reason that we should follow in the, in the footsteps of Job as we lead our kids by example to make a covenant with our eyes that we won't even look lustfully at another person that we shouldn't be looking at. We should begin this fight with, with the mind, making sure that we're not looking at things that we ought not be looking at. And if somebody says, oh, you're just being too legalistic, <laughs> listen, I, I don't want a spanking. I don't want the Lord to come along and punish me because I just didn't focus my mind where it needed to be focused. If you want to go down that path of destruction and get the punishment from the Lord, and you want to call that liberty, hey, go for it. That's, that's between you and the Lord. I don't want to go down that path. And I would argue that every loving parent feels the same way uh, for their kids, that we don't want those kids going down that path either. And so we need to train them up according to the truth of God's word. And, and what this means, parent, is that we need to monitor what they're listening to. We need to monitor what they're watching. We need to make sure that they're making a covenant with their eyes so that we can help them to get on the right path at an, at an early age. We should follow in the footsteps of Job as we lead them by example. And not only that, but we should also make sure that we're leading by example as we treat others the way we want to be treated. Let's consider how Job puts it here in our text tonight. Look with me there beginning at verse 13. Here he declares, if I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he punishes? How shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Now here in these verses we find Job, he's assuring his friends that he was a God-fearing employer who was quick to consider the complaints of his servants. And while it's true that he was the boss who was in charge of his own business here, it's also true that he treated his staff as human beings, not as less thans. He was of the belief that all human beings are image bearers of our creator, that we've all been created by the same God in the womb. And from this, we can see then, Job was a boss who believed in the equality of all people. He was the boss, he had his servants, but that didn't mean he treated them like servants. He treated them as human beings 
who worked for him. And in light of his example, we too should recognize the inherent value of every person, including those in the womb. By God's design, because we are image bearers of our creator, there is inherent value in the life of every person. And that's true regardless of race, no matter the class, no matter the gender, so on and so forth. The poorest person in the world is just as valuable in the eyes of God as the richest person. And in the eyes of our creator, the employee is just as valuable as the boss. At the core of our very being, we are all equal in the eyes of God. At the same time, I just also want to take a moment to uh, help you to recognize the difference between equality and equity. Because equity is a buzzword that's being thrown around a lot and It's important to understand that there is a huge difference between equality and equity. Equality refers to that quality or state of having the same rights and opportunities. If you come to me and say, hey, Pastor Bungie, I don't have the same rights and opportunities that you have in the world. Hey, I'm going to stand with you and fight for your equality. Because our rights come from God. We have unalienable rights that come to us from our creator and we should defend those rights for every single person because we are all created as image bearers of God. But that's not what we're talking about when we use the word equity. While equality seeks to uh, maintain or recognize the same rights and opportunities of every person, equity seeks to secure the same outcome for every person. Do you work hard all week? Bring home a paycheck? Sounds great. But then there's the person who doesn't want to work hard all week. And equity says they deserve the same paycheck that you worked for. Is that equal? Nope. It's equity. Equality, which is good, ensures that every person has the same unalienable rights which come from our creator, while equity is a Marxist delusion which aims for equal outcomes by applying favoritism to the groups who seem to suffer the greatest amount of intersectional oppressions. And if you can make your case for how you have more intersectional oppressions than somebody else, then, well, you get the leg up, you get the extras in the name of equality, but it's not equality. These social Marxists paint a beautiful picture of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as it's called. They present this beautiful picture of a DEI utopia uh, where everyone ends up with the equal amounts of everything. And yet at the end of the day, as the sun sets... This utopian delusion results in the tyrannical reign of those who rob us of our constitutional rights. And it's sad that we're already heading in this direction as more and more companies introduce DEI programs. And while they paint this beautiful picture about the equitable outcomes that we'll all enjoy, trust me and I'll tell you that this is nothing more than a rebranding of socialism, which always ends up with equal amounts of nothing for everyone. 
Well, except for those that are in charge of the system. Listen, there is no human government. Please trust me when I tell you, there is no human government that can secure an equitable outcome for every single person. And you might be thinking, well, but but Donald Trump can... Nope, nobody. Human government can't accomplish this. The government will never be able to achieve a utopia where everyone ends up with equal shares of everything. It's impossible. Thankfully, though, the Lord's plan is much better. You see, those who truly believe in the equality of every single person, well, they begin to develop a godly desire to help and care for those who are struggling to care for themselves. And this is the way that God really works it out. Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Job cared for the people who were struggling to care for themselves. If you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 31. I want to pick up at verse 16 where he declares, If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself, so that the fatherless could not eat of it. But from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, When I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket, for destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. Wow. Job here, he's assuring his friends that he's so fearful of God's judgment that he had turned into a charitable capitalist. Job was a charitable capitalist. Why? Because he didn't want to be punished by God for being greedy. Now here in America, in the 21st century, capitalism gets a bad rap. And yet it's actually the single economic system that has enabled more people to escape poverty than any other economic system ever employed. Not only that, but listen, people tend to be more generous living under capitalism than under any other economic system. You see, under Marxist-style socialism, the government comes along and takes from you and redistributes the wealth. That's not generosity. That's tyranny. That's, That's stealing from those who have to give to those who have not. But it, you know... Is stealing good? No. Do you hear me, IRS? Stealing's not good, even if the intentions are bad. If you sign up for a student loan, that loan is yours. You own it. Don't steal what I have because you want me to pay your student loan. If you work yourself into debt, don't turn around and expect me to pay your way out of that debt. And don't look to the government to steal my money so that you can have it. That's not fair. That's not equitable. 
But under capitalism, listen, capitalism provides every person with the equal opportunity to, to become rich. Under capitalism, anyone can go start a business. Anyone can go and, and start the production of a product. Build a better mousetrap and you'll be rich. Everyone has the same opportunity under capitalism to become wealthy. And it's for this reason that it's the best economic system that exists on the planet. Conversely, economic systems like socialism always make people poor. Why? Because the rich people flee from the system. They take their money and go somewhere else. And then you're left with a bunch of people who are struggling to make ends meet and no one is there to help them. It'll collapse on itself. But listen, furthermore, when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to those who walk by faith in Jesus Christ, capitalists ought to then become the most generous people in the world, much like Job, who was a capitalist. He had his business, he had his employees, he was making money, and he turned around and did what with it? He was charitable with the money. He helped those who were poor. He clothed those who needed clothing. And and for the Christian, listen, those of us who have received financial blessings are now called to share those blessings with those who are poor. I, I I could do, you know, a month's worth of studies on all the Bible verses that call Christians to give to the poor. And just to be clear, we're not talking about those who don't want to work. Paul presented it very clearly, those who don't want to work won't eat. So we're not talking about just giving money who don't want to work. We're talking about taking care of those who are truly poor, those who can't provide for themselves. We've been called to care for those who are, you know, widows and and those who are fatherless, orphans, and, and these sorts of people. It's for this reason that we have a line item in our budget here at Calvary South Austin which is money set aside for those who need financial help. You give money here at Calvary South Austin, and we take a portion of that, and we set it aside for those who are in need. And in this way, we together, church, work to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And this is a benefit under capitalism according to the instructions of the Lord. At the same time, we must also make sure that we're avoiding the idolatry that occurs when we begin to worship false gods. And I want to consider how Job puts it here in our text tonight. Look with me again there at Job chapter 31. We'll pick up our study at verse 24. Here he declares, If I have made gold my hope, or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an inequity deserving of judgment for I would have denied God who is above. Now, uh, here in these verses we find Job, he's assuring his friends that he wasn't guilty of the sort of idolatry that occurs whenever people begin to trust in the worldly wealth that they've acquired. You know, some people begin to make an idol out of their own wealth. And Job is saying, I didn't do that. And he says, hey, I wasn't guilty of worshiping the sun when it passed overhead. I didn't blow kisses to the moon at night. 
And he went on to acknowledge here that those who are guilty of these sorts of idolatries deserve the judgment of God. That being the case, we should take a moment to ask, you know, how long before the Lord judges America? I mean, we literally have a show called American Idol. How long before the the Lord judges America for our idolatries? You know, we've erected sports idols and, and silver screen idols. We've bowed before our favorite musicians as they sing all manner of satanic lyrics. We serve our social media influencers because, you know, rather than waking up and spending time with the Lord, we jump right on to whatever the influencer did the night before and we got to know what it was and we got to follow in their footsteps and these sorts of things. Worst of all, there's the idol of self. Because really, that's all, that's, that's what this boils down to. Whether you're blowing kisses to the moon or, you know, bowing before your favorite musician, whatever it is, you're your own idol. You're just choosing your favorite God. And without debate, America is guilty of idolatry and therefore deserving of God's righteous judgment. That being the case, I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's beginning at verse 13 where he declares, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, therefore, because God has an escape route for you, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As you're heading towards your idol, God says, hey, I've got an escape plan for you. Are you going to flee or no? We should flee. Those who want to make sure that we stay on course with Christ Jesus, we must flee from our idols. And with this as the goal, let's make sure that we're sacrificing those things that lead us to worship something other than the Lord. And then let's make sure that we're worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. At the same time, we should also make sure that our heart is right when the Lord pours his punishment out upon those who are wicked. I want to consider how Job explains it here in our text tonight. And so look with me there at verse 29. Here Job goes on to declare, If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him, indeed I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of family so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's helping his friends to understand that he never rejoiced when he saw disaster striking his enemies. And that's, that's a struggle, isn't it? You know, when we see someone that we consider our enemy and they're getting their they're just desserts when we see terrorists being blown from their bunkers. You know, the, the tendency is to rejoice in that. And yet, 
the Lord has been very clear that we're not to do that. And here Job is saying, I, I've, I haven't. I, I, I don't rejoice in the destruction of my enemies. He never celebrated when harm came their way. He was always happy to help those in need, and he never gave in to the mob rules mentality that can easily turn common people into a horde of haters, you know, who are ready to attack you if you don't have your mask on, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Never gave in to the, the mob rules mentality. He was never pressured into silence for fear of the same. He wasn't about to allow the mob to silence him and keep him home. No, he would go out into the streets and speak his mind. And to sum it up with simplicity, Job was a man who was more interested in pleasing the Lord than he was with trying to please the fickle masses who are always changing their mind about what they're mad about. He wasn't concerned about his personal popular vote, nor did he concern himself with the fears of peer pressure, but instead Job just wanted to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord, regardless of the way that that might make him popular or unpopular. And in light of his example, we would do well to, to spend less time trying to please the people of this world and more time seeking to know how we might please our Creator. You know, I think about the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. John the Baptist left the cities and went into the wilderness and conducted his ministry out in the middle of nowhere. And they hated him for it. Jesus conducted his ministry in the cities, going from town to town. And they hated him for it. You can't please the fickle people. And so why try? Why are we trying to please the people who are going to be mad if we do and mad if we don't? We ought to instead make sure that we're pleasing to the Lord. Listen, if you get to heaven and find out that you pleased everyone except Jesus, there's going to be a problem. Let's make sure that we're living our lives for the Lord in the way that Job was. And with this as the goal, let's consider the way that Job puts it here in our text tonight. Look with me again here at Job chapter 31. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 35. Here he goes on to declare, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and it furrows weep, uh, its furrows weep together. If I have eaten its fruit worth, uh, without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job crying out to the Almighty God, and the reason why was because he wanted to understand why the Lord was punishing him. Now, we know that it wasn't the Lord punishing him. It was the enemy who had attacked him. But he's still of this mindset that, you know, he's under the punishment of the Lord. And as he takes an assessment of his life, as he considers this list of things that deserve punishment, and then coming to the conclusion that he's not guilty of any of these things, he's like, why? Why is the Almighty punishing me? He's struggling to comprehend the reason for the pain and the suffering that he had been enduring. And after crying out to Almighty God, he then appeals to the one who is prosecuting him. And it's there in the middle of verse 35 where he goes on to declare, Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. 
Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. As we consider this request, I just want to remind you that Job walked the earth before Moses wrote the Torah. And so there was no Torah to appeal to. There was no book, so to speak. And so it's here in in, in these verses where we find Job crying out for the books of the law. He's saying, oh man, I wish God would just write a book so I knew what was going on here. Thankfully for us, God has provided us with a book. And it's a book that clearly presents us with what the Lord expects of us. But can you imagine, you know, being Job, living a life where you're trying to please the Lord, but there's no instruction manual? Well, now we have the fullness of God's written word. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the fullness of God's written word. We have every word that we need from God. And while it's true that the Lord has written his law upon every person's heart, it's also true that the Lord has provided us with clear instructions within his word so that we have explicit information of what God wants us to do and how we ought to live our lives. How much time do you spend making sure you know what's in this book? How much time do you spend making sure that you know what God would have us to do and what we ought not do? And and if you're thinking, well, you know, I've tried to read it, but it's just so hard. Listen, the Lord has not only given us the written word, but he's also given us the Holy Spirit who authored the written word through the servants that he raised up. And with the indwelling spirit of God, you don't think that, the Spirit of God will help you to understand the written word so that we can walk accordingly? Of course he will. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit who indwells the born-again believer, well, the Holy Spirit will give us the spiritual strength that we need so that we can live a life that is pleasing to him. The Holy Spirit will empower us so that we can walk according to the word of God. And with that being the case, I encourage every Christian to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And in this way, we become those believers who are walking in the holiness of the Lord according to his perfect plan. At the same time, it's important for us to realize that, you know, the Lord has no problem punishing every backslidden believer. And, and this is very important for those of us who believe in sloppy agape and greasy grace, you know, in, in the mindset of thinking that, well, you know, I'm, I'm still forgiven. I got my fire insurance and so I can live any old way. Well, not so much according to what Paul says here in Hebrews chapter 12. It's beginning at verse 4 where Paul declares this. He speaks to these believers and says, You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. In other words, the Christians that he's writing to, they're still struggling with sin, right? And he says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. 
Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Christian, listen, the believer who is failing to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Well, we can rejoice in knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he will provide us with the loving correction that we need to help get us back on course. Isn't that incredible? Now, what this means is that Christians can still struggle with sin. Christians can still fail to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians can still begin to slide backwards and practice sinful things. But we can rejoice in knowing that God the Father will come along and provide us with the correction that we need to get us back on course. And so, yeah, there's times when the loving correction of the Lord, it involves natural consequences. You know, there are times when the Lord allows us to experience the consequences of our decisions here on the earth. And not only that, but there are also times when he will chastise us with the punishment that we need so that we might realize, hey, we need to repent and return to him. Praise the Lord. And in this we should rejoice because it's evidence that we are the adopted children of God. Isn't that nice? Not so much? I see this as a good thing, not that I like the punishment, not that I want the spiritual spanking, but I do at least love knowing that the Father loves us enough to punish us when we need it. And while we all realize that the loving correction of the Lord is a painful process, it's also necessary for pruning. And it's this pruning that helps us to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And it's for this reason that we can rejoice in knowing that the chastisement of the Lord is evidence that our Heavenly Father loves us. And in this we can rest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for how you use it 